music, memory, narrative, performativity, um, language, spoken and unspoken, uh, and some of the conversations that I think will come out of some of those works that we're going to talk about. So one of the things that I was struck, of, struck by when I, was listening, when I was sort of reading through some of the biennials, some of the exhibitions that you've been involved in, is that you're really um, an artist of this contemporary, uh, contemporary moment that we talk about, um, in the sense that you um, have shown across the world, you've shown in a range of biennials and major shows, and are of the world, but obviously come from one place. And I think I'd like to start really by going back to that beginning, that place that you came from, and asking what impact that early experience of growing up in a communist state really had on that subsequent thinking of yourself as an artist, as a contemporary artist, working in that global context. Um, thank you for the introduction. Hello, everyone. Um, it, it definitely has, a, has an impact um, like the way how one grows up, that bring has an impact on everybody's life. I think specifically the fact that I grew up in, a, in, in, a, in this period of time that I was grown enough to realize what the previous system was, politically, socially, the, the, the regime, but as well as understand the nature of the transition. I think in, in uh, I was born in 74 and, and the regime fall in, in 90, early 91, and then I left to Paris in 96. I say this because um, it, it's very interesting I, with the, in terms of the generation just before me, or even if it's like five, six years uh, older than me, like the generation of my sister, for example, I think they were much more already taken a certain shape into what the thing was. During the communist regime before, there was, there was this sense that time was not moving because things were fixed in, in time, the ideology, the society, etc. But then on the other side, I think a generation which followed after, which is much freer, etc., there, there was something slightly ahistorical in relation to it because when you are born in a transition that is not moving very fast, you, have the, you don't understand why you are where you are, where you find yourself. Like, is it a transition? Is it from where to where? So having said that, I think uh, if I think more specifically about my sensibility or my work, I think is the, the idea of the, the rupture, this complete rupture of uh, common values, uh, whether acquired and required from the people, meaning imposed on the people, but also the common sense values and how all of them were questioned just in a matter of a couple of years, the moment that the regime fell. So this sort of rupture in the narrative, I think there's something that's been very, very present in my work from early on when language was a little bit more present and yet questioned, like with Intervista. Mm -hmm. And then it has, it has continued uh, further on, but maybe in ways which are more implicit and, not, and, and less declarative. Um, than, than before, but also an, an, a special interest I've been taking on the idea of the, um, of the present moment, for example, like how long the present moment stretches, what is that moment that, does, that one cannot divide in past, present and future. So I think they are all somehow unconsciously related to, to, to that moment of bringing up. Having said that, I find myself very much in the interval between places. Uh, for example, I was able to do my very first important to me work intervista with my mother only once I was in Paris and I don't think I would be able to do that if I was still in Albania not because of just the lack of the logistics but just because I wouldn't have had the necessary detachment and distance from the subject I was I wanted to relate to so I find myself both even my work I guess very much in the space of the interval not in one place but and neither in the other but just in the interval in between so uh, we'll come back to that um, interview, which is obviously a really, as you say, seminal early work. And I think it... Um, but one of the things I just wanted to pick up on was um, obviously having moved from Albania to Paris, it's... Um, French isn't your first language. Um, it's obviously a language... You speak a number of different languages. But that idea of um, observation or remove that you talk about, this space in between... I mean, Australia is also a country that has a long immigrant history. Um, people have made choices to come here. Um, and whether it gives you a detachment to talk of an earlier experience, if you can, 
in a way that, as you say, if you were in it, you wouldn't be able to do it quite in the same way. Is that? Um, it, let's go back to the to the point with Intervista and what that actually was, uh, and why you think that was such a sort of singular piece, seminal piece that you could only make in Paris at that time. Yeah, I, I, that's um, it's something I could make in Paris because while being still in Albania, you are too full of, of, of the past. The past was still very present, so that you just want to leave it behind, you want to move on. Um, it takes a lot of energy to deal with the past, especially when it's still being dealt with. Or So by being in Paris, I realized that exactly that past was, was uh, very interesting to deal with, but I did not in terms of dealing with the past but it was more like I, I found it very much uh, engraved in the present and, mm. and in, the, in the issues and raised in, this very, in the very present. So this being far away, at least psychologically, I had the feeling I had a choice. And therefore, I had the choice to, to, to look back uh, at it. If I, was, if I would have been there continuously, I'd, you'd rather be more implied to look forth, to look towards outside, to look towards somewhere else, to, to detach yourself from the very problematics of the of the of your own surroundings. So the work in was the, obviously just to interrupt. The work was um, a piece of footage that you found. Yeah, the, the work was a piece of footage that I found by 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 chance in my parents' mm -hmm. house after they've moved from a bigger house when I was still there and my sisters as well. And then when we left, they just moved to a smaller place. And basically, I was asked on one of my returns to clean a bit my things and really choose what I wanted Tidy to up keep. Your room. <laughs> exactly. And that's where I found also things that did not belong to me. And among them, this film metal box uh, where, that I took with me that probably they thought it's film, it's art, must be our sons. And I saw there in the rushes my, my mother, like 30 years younger than, than at the time when I found the, the film, uh, speaking in a congress of the communist youth. She, she, she was one of the leaders of the communist youth. And then one, at some point you also see her in the congress when there's a greeting of the dictator and then they're very close. So, but the sound was um, lost, so somehow I could, not, I could not hear what she said in this interview. Not that I, not that I would, couldn't guess, because back then things were so... so um, framed, the, 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 the language, political, what you mm. could say in the public was so extremely framed that there were not, there were not much, uh, you couldn't drift much out of the, of the usual pathway, Doctrine. of the, the highway of yeah. the political structure and, and, and meaning. Uh, however, I, yet I was interested because finding the, 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 the voice first or the, the sound would be like a key to be able to ask her about what's different and, and etc. And then being unable to find the sound that the film, like one can understand all this during the film, it's, uh, I ended up with the idea of going to the school for the listening impaired children and be helped by the elder students yeah. to read the lips. Um, so in a way it was, in the, in the absence of the sound, it was the choreography of the lips that would be able to undig and bring the, the, the meaning once said. Um, and that's where I had my, I, I think that's where it's interesting because my very first work, which was narrative, where the narrative was important, basically there is a narrative structure, it tells a story. On the other side, it's the, the very work that also made me so aware and untrustful towards narratives. And the reason was, the, the main reason was that uh, when, once I've, I had uh, the lips read and subtitled, and I showed to my mother, she could not believe the way she spoke, not so much, not, not at all the political content, because there was no question about it, yeah. but the, the syntax, the way how she articulated the speech. It, it felt very unarticulated for somebody who was and is extremely articulated. And this is where I became aware, or we became aware of this, that, that the syntax is not a seamless thing, that when the, in moments on, of political changes and social ruptures, content might move on into a tra transition period, but the syntax, when it's stiffened so much, it cannot make it. So if you, if you listen or, or read or hear a speech 30 years later, you, have, you wonder how well the person was, how well articulated the person was. So this is what made me aware of this thing that usually in moments of continuity, political continuity, social continuity, it's very transparent. 
but in moments of rupture, it's, it loses a transparency like, like a glass of a car that you break or, 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 or a building, and then suddenly it becomes opaque. And then you start seeing based on what, how people construct meaning and, mm -hmm. and control it as well. And of course your mother, um, you've said, played quite a singular role in your, um, I suppose, early education into learning about understanding, thinking about or having the opportunity to learn about the Western art canon through her position, didn't mm -hmm. she? Yeah, at a later position, not as, mm -hmm. a, as, a, um, as a leader of the Communist Youth, but no. when she was uh, director of the National Library. Mm. I, I had some, no, I wasn't the only one, also some other people. It was a matter of trust. You had to trust people back then because the whole thing was functioning on the fear of being spied. Right? Mm. But uh, we had access on, on some books which were like the forbidden collection of yeah. the National Library and that's where you could see things. But not necessary in the, maybe that also has to do with the way how I deal with narratives because Usually, you go to an art school, things will, come, will be presented to you in a chronological order according to history of art or contemporary art or classic art. And there, because in Albania, anything starting from Impressionism and on was forbidden. So the books that you would, you would find, they were not organized. So you could fall, um, you could, I don't know, I'm just saying, you might end up seeing a, a, a book of Kandinsky well later than a book of Dubuffet, let's say. So it was not in the chronological order, which was also interesting because it's this question of what is the, the timeline? Is the, the objective timeline or is it such as I live it, such as I experience it? Well, you're creating your own, own timeline, and, uh, and therefore, yeah. which is as, as real as it gets as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing about history. There's an assumed canon, and yet, of course, we all select the history often to suit our own narrative and interests anyway. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. So when you were um, getting access to those books, starting to, this you were at secondary school, at school at that stage? Yeah, in the high school. And yeah. had you, did you feel at that stage that you were moving into, was, was the sort of creative world or the going to art school or was that something? I, I was already in the art school. In the, yeah. in, in, at that time in, or maybe no, I was about to, um, get into art school. Maybe I was 12, 13 years old and I get, got into art school at 14 years old. That's how. So in Albania, it's the same as Italy and other European countries where you choose to go to a, a you have to choose or a scientific yeah. school. So you've already well, chosen. Even more than that, because like, you have to go in this art school and then there is no way back. Yeah. There is no way you can catch up and decide four years later to go in a normal university because the curriculum has already been changed. So you have to become an artist, whatever. Artists will become. <laughs> so it's selected, it's decided for you. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was just thinking back to this idea of um, talking to your mother or using that piece of footage, found footage, to sort of rethink that moment. And obviously there's the syntax, there's what's not said, there's the lack of words. But do you think it enabled you to rethink your own um, relationship or understanding, you know, Parents, I think, often you see in a very particular role, and it's only a certain point of distance that you're able to look at them and ergo yourself, in a way, um, through a very different lens. Do you think that was part of it? Or? The parents, you mean? Or? Yeah, the relationships. No. Are, no? No, not at all, because I think, first of all, like I said, the, 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 the struggle or the trouble was not the content. So it's not like I discovered, like there are many other films I've seen, like I discovered the hidden past of my parents. No, nothing like, it was something which was there in the open. Everybody would have spoken the same. There's a moment in the film where I find at the end of the interview, you see the face of the guy who was a journalist and he was the main political or journalist sent for political events. And then he would tell me I, he, that he couldn't remember before I found the, the, the way to read the lips, that he couldn't remember what she said, but anyway, he could guess it because he might have done more than, I don't know, two, 3,000 interviews in his professional life, and they all sounded the same. Exactly the same. So yeah. there was no, it's not like it helped me discover anything, etc. It was really, it made us both become aware of this control, how much control is made via the syntax, not yeah. necessarily the, 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 the content. So this was the epiphany for me. It was not like a... And also, there was a lot of um, closeness in that because first she was not obliged to do it and many people would not have done it. She was, but it was a, a sense of trust at the same time. Not trust about what the film would become, but this continuous trust that it takes when you walk along a path and then you 
you, you trust the process. Do you think there was a cadence that is also that is almost um, unconsciously assumed when you're speaking for different purposes? I mean, I think th there was a something that I saw quite a long time ago, and it was um, a member of the church, a minister in the church, who was saying something that was had nothing to do with the liturgy, had nothing to do with religious, you know, anything, any sort of subject matter. And yet the way it was presented, the, the cadence of the voice, meant that it lulled you into this sense of this is a received doctrine. Is, was there something within that as well, do you think, that the cadence that people assume to actually talk or uh, almost like a musical notation that, yeah, that, you, yeah. that you absorb? Well, there was there was that, but I, I, it was really it was uh, the the form of language when you'd speak publicly for the only TV station, which was the one and only one. It was really the formulas where, where not that they don't exist in the democracies; those formulas uh, exist as well. I mean, just to without wanting to get into any <laughs> trouble, but like for example, this very well meant, but the welcome to the country thing. Mm. It already has the same formula think. Mm. Uh, now, you can't compare the things, different contexts with the dictatorship, with the democracy, uh, problems within, with problems that you've, you, you have to deal with the history, but still, to say that there is something very quick, the syntax, the syntax starts taking over, mm. this moment of liturgy, this moment of the repetition, this moment mm. of the, that you start relying on the form and without really trying to do something new with the content. Yeah. So you, you stop using the form as a platform for new content. And of course, in Albania, you couldn't do that because you are not, you are by far not welcome to question the content. So you just fall back in the form and then repeat it again and again. So I want to talk about another work that is, I think, um, probably equally seminal, one of those early works, and that is Dammi uh, Colori, um, which again I think speaks to this. I, I wonder if it's something that you could only make again when you are outside in Paris. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you decided to go to art school in Paris, um, and this was a work that you made coming back to um, Tirana, wasn't it? I read the Intervista, it's the work that I did when I was in the art school uh -huh. in Paris. Yep. That's why I was able to, to, to do it, so to this say. This is 2003. So, yeah. yeah, and then this was after I had finished uh, the, my studies, where I just settled in Paris. And it's a work that I did. I mean, I would go back almost every year, or at least once a year, to Albania, and a friend of mine... Uh, since a very long time, uh, like one generation older than me, Edi Rama, he had an artist, uh, he had been living before in Paris and then he moved back to Tirana and uh, as a minister of culture and then he was elected. And of course famously started the Tirana Biennial. Yeah, that was just in his first, uh, absolutely. So he, one I of the very... I think we'd love to have a mayor that started a biennial. <laughs> And was but, an now, but now it's a bit too late because we are questioning the biennials now. So. I know, I know, I know. I, that was just we had to do that at the beginning. Exactly. We'll come back yeah. to that. <laughs> but um, he he did start this um, among many things that he started. He started this this thing, which was a painting of the facades, which was very politically. It was a, a political gesture. It was yeah. not an artistic gesture, but it was a political gesture with a artistic um, approach. Outcome, yeah. Outcome. And when he started doing the very first, uh, painting the very first buildings, uh, I was back in Tirana, I saw uh, one or two streets, but and that's not necessary when the moment I said, oh, I want to make a film about it, but when I, I met him and I asked him how was the experience, and he told me about it, and he told me also about the, the doubts. He didn't have doubts about it being the right thing to do, because it was not the only thing he was, they were doing, yeah. but it was something that an immediate impact, while other things would be taking longer because they were more structural. But he said that in, uh, there was a very big uh, response to it, both positive, negative, views politically, etc. So he made a, a, a small poll with his office where he asked people these two questions. The first question was, do you like it? And uh, like 60-65% of the people liked it and the others didn't. And then the second question was, do you want it to continue? And 90% of the people wanted to continue. So it was about 30% of the people that did not like what they see, but what they saw, but they wanted to continue. Yeah. And that is what triggered my desire to do that film. Because at the end, this is the pol was the political part, the, 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 so to say, the, the engine behind, which has no immediate and direct relation with the aesthetics of it. So this was the... the, the um, 
what drives the desire of the people and what was the what were the colors or at least that approach the medicine for in in this particular moment of transition so of course the the buildings are largely um utilitarian well largely um you would you say almost failed sort of constructivist style buildings post um uh, communist regime um in a state of relative decay um, as you drive around and you see these buildings with these incredible stripes of colours, the coloration that goes on, you're drawn to what's happening on the ground, which is a larger infrastructure change, exactly, so, yeah. which takes much longer. Yeah. So do you think that art in that context can have a particular impact? I mean, you talk about 60% uh, of people wanting it, mm -hmm. the remainder didn't, and yet everyone wanted it con to continue. They didn't like it, but they wanted it to continue. So what role do you think art plays in that context? Well, I can, in that context, I can speak for that context, because I guess different contexts need different tools and different yeah. answers. But in that one was, like, in Albania during the time of communism, um, there was, everybody invested a lot in it. It's not like everybody was obliged. There was a, a whole period when people really believed in the, in the project, and everything was so much invested in, the, in what we share in common, in the public spaces, in the collective spaces, in the, in the schools, in the kindergarten, everything you share in common. Plus, knowing that the idea, the notion of the of the private property was very reduced in Albania compared even to the other Eastern countries. So, in that sense, at the fall of the regime, people had already realized before, especially after the 80s, the, the and even before that, the economy. Not not only people had realized that it was a political dictatorship, but also the the living standards had had fallen yeah. very low over time. So, uh, people really felt that they've been abused and that whatever they had invested in did not return anything to mm. them uh, or to their children. So the first thing that they hated the moment that the, that the regime fall, they hated the public space. They hated everything they had invested onto together. Private space became very important. And actually it was uh, in 97 when there is a moment of crisis and because of the fall of the Ponzi scheme, etc., Again, once again, we were six, seven years after the fall of the communist regime. The first way people showed their anger was once again destroying the public spaces. So this in 2003, I think it was a very genuine and, and, and smart and, and bold way to try to trigger a new desire in the public space. To make people start consider the public space not anymore as somebody else or something from the past, but something which they have to live with every day, and that probably this is the very thing that is going to be what will improve the city, what will improve the relation, what will improve the, the, the behavior of the people with each other, and, and people would feel more like looking outwards rather than looking inwards in that sense. And in that sense, it was, that was very it's a very successful. Um, tool, a very successful approach, because first it continued, and second, and it's only a very easy way to see how successful something is, is that in the next elections, it was not used as an argument by the political, by the others. It's just a statement of fact. Because it was a, 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 it, a, it, as a fact, a it was a big success, yep, so yep. there's nothing you could really, yep. you couldn't use it anymore as something handicapping the, the, the person behind. And of course, the title of that work, Dammi Colori, give me, you know, give me or show me the colours, was um, has a connection to perhaps one of the to a piece of music, um, to Puccini's opera, to Tosca. Tosca. What was the thinking? I mean, obviously, there's a literal connection, but what was the association with music in that context? Not yet. To tell the truth, I don't think. Um, I mean, at the same time, I started doing probably. At the same time, I think I did another work which is called um, Mixed Behavior with mm -hmm. a friend of mine, DJ, who is mis mixing music. And I think that was the very first work where music is uh, an important element yeah. and is part of the action. It's basically the outcome of the very action one sees in the, in the film. Uh, before that, I had already lost the interest in narratives and in, and in language. There are some works before, like... Time after time, Uomo Duomo, and some others where language had been become absent. But Dami Colori, it, again, it was it, it was a bit like a, a, a pop-up in my relation to 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 language because it it was 
it, it brings back this interest in the narrative. Language plays a very important role. It's no longer a relation to the past, between the present and the past, but it's rather more a, a relation between the present and the future. Because the... And your uh, relationship to that present and future. As well. Because also I made this... Uh, the voice is usually always coming during the shots I did at night, which mm -hmm. have this effect of something which is probably not there yet, not real, and there is clearly their very political, it's political message, and it's their, they promise a future that could be different, where, uh, where one would stop feeling like they are living in a, in, in a city which is not out of their choice, but out of their destiny. So uh, I was particularly interested in, in, in keeping this relation between the promise, the language, and the, and the night, where the people are not there, the city is sort of, because everybody was, most of the people were sleeping, instead of putting his political, or these this words, this language, putting them on the day scenes when the people are there, like a, like a, uh, a voiceover on the people. So these were like important choices. So do you think me. that absence gives the viewer um, a greater ability to put themselves into that context, to think about this potential future? I think it's both. It, it gives that. It, keeps, uh, it, it still keeps the language in the level of a promise, which is uh, something which is about to become but not there yet. And the fact that it's not, uh, while you can see the people at daytime in the city, it's not like you are taking their voice mm. or imposing your own voice, even if you are me or the mayor or somebody else or... Uh, on the people that you, you see on the screen. So for me, it was very important not to have that voice, that message uh, on an image where you see the other people living in the city. I have to say, from seeing that work very, very, um, quite a number of years ago now, and then obviously every time I go to a biennial, every time I see a work, I, I'm always, I, I feel as though I'm like, a bit like a groupie. I sort of run and look um, particularly to see because it's your works need a number of times to sort of reveal them. But there is an incredible ability to suspend reality. To I, I think you do become seduced very quickly and I think that's why that rep you need that repetition to sort of try and understand where you fit within this reality or, or unreality that's being created through this um, work that often appears to have a narrative but is a non-narrative process. So it's a sort of... There are a series of... You think there's something that you're... You, you, there's a real process of feeling your way through it, trying to make sense of it, and that absence enables you to do that, I think, quite mm. very cleverly. But I wanted to come, because um, I know that there's so much we could talk about, but I wanted to talk particularly about um, a work that I think has um, many people will have seen um, and is, has been talked extensively, but it, is, it sort of encapsulates a number of these things from the past, from the present, and this idea of narrative and absence that we're talking about, and that's, of course, The Long Sorrow, which you made in 2005. I most recently, I think, saw it in Auckland, I think possibly with Victoria, um, and it was where it was being presented with um, uh, a performance alongside um, uh, the filming of the work. So, of course, um, for those that, that haven't been able to see the show, you know, the, to see this particular work, um, when you first see it, um, you see this, again, form of um, utopian or quite brutalist architecture you're not sure where it is. So you know that it's a particular modernist form of architecture, but you don't know whether it's in Berlin. I, I thought it was probably Marseille when I first saw it, but that idea of a utopian vision architecture that could create a sort of platform for something, and you hear a refrain, you hear the music, which is free jazz. Um, what was it about free jazz? What was it about this juxtaposition of architectural spaces and sound, improvised sound, that started this thinking around this work? Well, there were, there were different simultaneous things that triggered me to the idea first. Um, I rented in this lange jammer, the long, which one can translate also as a long summer, uh, sorrow. It's the longest building in Berlin, but also one of the longest buildings in I think it's 1.8 metres long. It's 1.8 uh, um, kilometres long. long. Yeah. And I was lucky to, to be able to get... Uh, and rent this apartment which is at the very edge of it. So there was one aspect of it that as a continuity of all these utopic ideas in relation to architecture where it was about reorganizing the, the, the share between the private space, the semi-private space, the public space, even within the private space itself, for example. 
uh, and ideas which somehow did not really make it. At least they did not did not couldn't make it mainstream with the with the people in the in the city in Berlin. And I wanted it was an attempt to extend the building even longer, but also extend the possibilities one can do from his own apartment. And mm. so turn this, uh, produce this structure like a stage structure with the lights just outside that apartment where somebody eventually could have his own performance. Um, and then there was this idea of like how to extend it and also being aware that I was going to put physically but also mentally the musician under quite a... Extreme pressure. Extreme pressure <laughs> because he was really suspended, scientifically 100% safe, yet... Uh, and also legally, according to all the, the legal frames in Germany, but still psychologically, the moment that you are suspended 80 meters above the, the ground, the, it's very difficult to, to believe in, in empirism and, yeah. in, and in all these things it's that like we so much have been have invested in. It's like people who have a fear of flying, and they know in their right part of it, their but brain it really that goes, right, it really but goes beyond, especially yeah. if you are a wind instrument as well, because yeah. when you play a wind instrument, the, it's very important the gravity. It's very in relation to the organs in your body, the stomach, etc. But one reason is that the, the saxophone, of course, is like the instrument that one associates most with the free jazz. Yeah. And I was interested in free jazz, not just because of the metaphor, the idea of the, f of the improvisation, the freedom, uh, but also because when you suspend a musician there, the only way for the musician to forget his own condition or her own condition would be to have to continuously improvise the next moment. To, to look for the next moment. What is the next note? What is the next musical phrase? It has to come from you. It's not scored. It's not been scripted before. Mm. And this, actually, by making it more difficult, makes it more easy. Because it's a way to forget your own condition. If it, was, if it had been another uh, instrument, say a violin or instruments, any other instruments which is portable that you do not associate to free jazz but more to, to, to scored music, that would have been absolutely impossible because the moment that the musician knows the score by, by heart, then it would have been enough time to, to question yourself the wrong questions right there, right then, which mm -hmm. was, what am I doing here? Suspended 80 meters above the ground. So I think there was the, it was both the, the metaphoric side of the, of the choice, but also the fact that it was the only instrument and the only way of approaching music that that allowed the, this complete and total busyness of the, of, the, of the state of mind. So I was intrigued, and one of the questions that I wanted to know when I first met you was, you know, where does this interest in music come from? Is it, is it from an understanding of playing? Is it from an understanding of the possibilities? Um, sometimes it's following a score, um, but obviously in this instance it's, it's creating a space to almost reveal the unknown, as you say, not fall back on um, technique and not fall back on um, processes of the, the, that will be defined by the instrument. Is, is this, how did this evolve? Well, in my case, it is very much related to what we started our discussion with about my distrust in language. So it went through a period when I started doing, with the exception of Dami Colori, I started doing works which where language was withdrawn. First it was silence, sound, and eventually sound became music. Now looking at, back at it, I think it's, uh, what triggered it is that to want to find another channel or way of communication with the, with the other, with the visitor, with the public, which does not go through language. And in that sense, I think, uh, with some exception, I think music has this quality to, to convey without telling. So it has a quality which I call pre-narrative. So mm -hmm. it, it, it can share with, with the others. It, it is very implicit versus language which is much more explicit. And therefore it allows more, I would say, more subjectivity for the viewer and the listener. So this were the, the one aspect of it. And the other aspect is the relation between music and architecture. Because music is a, is a way to, to unfold time in, in, uh, in, space. in space, in the, 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 to produce all these separations, these intervals, these bars, this like so, it's very something very architecture. And the way how I work with music, my first decisions are rarely related to the melody, meaning to the musical part of music. They are mm -hmm. more related to that to, to the way how music takes care of time. 
to the interpretation? No, no how time. music takes care of time, being an architecture of time, takes care of the present moment and then takes care of the moment to come, whether it's through means of improvisation or through scored music. So this relation between uh, music and architecture, but also music uh, differently from language being more implicit in the way how it, it conveys without and suggests without uh, telling and, and um, framing the narrative. This is what I think draw me closer to music. So two questions in that. One, um, do you think that this idea of having moved then living in a series of spaces where perhaps that language is not your first language, this idea of creating a universal language that can be understood by many different perspectives, positions, and those that don't share the same language informed that desire to, to find a universal that you could equally understand, equally interpret, and yet not know the tool, not have the tools to decipher in a traditional way. Do you think that has could, played a part? Could be. I mean, it's... Um, um it could have played a part. I know that I'm um, aware, I was, I've said this before, I'm aware of how much power and hierarchy is embedded in the syntax. We're speaking mm. about this. How much, for example, over time, there are certain things which are completely politically incorrect to say, which comes through emancipation, through the fact that societies become more tolerant and more open, etc. But there is no such a thing when it comes to sound. There are, no, there are certain accents, certain way of using a language which bring along a lot of hierarchy, power, dominance, etc. But you can't outlaw accent. You can't outlaw the acoustic uh, aspects of power in terms through of the way how... Through, through, space. Through, through No, through the way how people speak English, mm. say. Uh -huh, For example, okay. you speak English or you could say the French or some other, like some languages have been important engines of to control the world and also to impose your own gaze to the others. So now over time with emancipation, etc., one can control how this what one can say or not say with this language, but you cannot control um, the way the, the, the all this the power that has been invested within the accents, within the different hierarchies of who speaks and how one speaks that language. And who has voice. And who has the voice and who has the microphone as well. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, I mean, obviously, the, the, the choice of free jazz, in a way, subverts all of that for, because it isn't scripted. It doesn't have a score. Um, it consciously doesn't have a score. So there isn't, even in a musical term, any sort of framework that that, that, that musician can actually revert or refer back to. Mm -hmm. So that completely uh, reinforces what you're just talking about mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. language. Um, what about this idea of music as an ability to create a sort of cathartic release or a sort of incantation. You talk about the use of the wind. You know, this is for the musician himself in this case, um, having to have that relaxed state to be able to actually produce the sound. The experience for, for viewers, the experience for the participant of, of um, almost physically feeling that sound and that release that can occur. Is that something that you think about in that process? I do. I mean, I definitely do think of the of of not only of the musician, but what is the act, the labor, the the action that that can produce the music I'm working with. Uh, since very since this film mixed behavior, my use of music has always been that music. You can't separate what you hear from what you see because what you see happening in the film is exactly what is producing what you are hearing. So music is never like a soundtrack. Something that you use according to certain existing codes to, uh, to enhance a certain moment or a certain emotional moment. It's really what is being produced, what is at the very end of a chain of production, which, is, which you see happening in the film. So this thing that you cannot split what you see from what you hear, it's very, it was, it's been always very important to me. I think maybe it also has a, uh, something to do with the fact of you can trust it because you see it happening. So it's not manipulating you. So is that to do with performativity? Is that to do with... Um, I'm thinking now particularly of the Ravel piece mm -hmm. that you showed in Venice. Um, and the th there are three screens. The two. two screens, sorry. Um, 
It's a work that was created for the left hand. And I know for myself there are certain um, uh, pieces of music that I will go to to hear a live performance because I need to see that experience that you're talking about of music and, and performativity. Um, the two hands performing, but you very often focus on, although it's a piece for one hand, the other hand of the performer. Um, so it was conceived for a musician who had lost his hand in the Second World War, First, uh, First World War, um, could only perform, uh, commissioned a series of works um, from some of the leading composers of the world uh, at that time uh, for one hand. Um, and yet what you focus on is that, that um, relationship between the music and the performativity, mm -hmm. that need to look at the... It, it, is that as a counter, do you think, to this... You know, we hear at the moment that the Western art canon is dying and music and that, you know, film scores are really the next area where more innovation is happening and yet you're talking about it being a score that um, illustrates and that's something that you're consciously not trying to create. So do you think you need... It, it, were you very conscious of that when you were showing the music and the performance in a work like Ravel Ravel? Well, I think what did, what did interest me a lot in, in terms of writing music for the left hand, because like, it has to be said that there are around... Especially back then, the whole idea is that people have to use the right hand. I, I think it was even until very late, until the, mm -hmm. I don't know... 30, 40 years right ago, hand. that yeah. the, right, the right hand okay. was... Uh, and all the musical instruments until maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago were only right uh, produced for the right hand. And it's interesting to, when you expect so much attention paid on the right hand, to realize that there are over 6,000 pieces of composition for the left hand only, and less than 100 written for the right hand only. And of course, you, you easily one can trace, trace, it, uh, trace it back to the fact that a lot of it was written just during and after the First World War, which is the, the war that provoked the most loss of, how do you say, like... Uh, limbs. Of limbs, life. of body. Um, but no, not only lives, but like of, co of course of lives. It was the most... But of injury. Injury. Partial injury. And of course, many people, because they're trained to do things with the right hand, they lost the right hand rather than the than the left hand, so it produced and also it corresponds with the with the moment which predates the recording in industry as such. So to listen to music back then meant that you had to play it or somebody a friend of yours had to play. It. So it was very normal for people to play in order to listen, which for us is to play, meaning you play the the, the playback in order to listen. So it was it was the impact of a war on the on of the body of a, of a, of a human being had an, an uh, immediate and direct relation to playing music or not. Mm. So this is, uh, that was my first interest about choosing to, to make a work with the concerto for the left hand, was how it related indirectly and implicitly to the, to the, to the war, basically, and to the very history of Europe in terms of the First World War, etc. Because, of course, it was shown um, you were representing France, but shown in the German pavilion. Yeah. So that was, um, was that the second time that they had swapped or they'd shown a, no. Anyway, so the, the first, two, time, I, I, first yeah. time. And they was, so you were showing in the German pavilion, which as you have said, is um, the French pavilion is owned by the Italian government. Uh, like many pavilions, like many pavilions still in, the, the in the Giardini. The German pavilion is own, owned by the German state. Yes. Correct. That was one of the aspects that interests me, and also that's why I had to commission like a, a text of a, of a lawyer from the, from the legal point of view about the copyright, is that the moment when I, I did this work for the French pavilion, but shown in the German pavilion, is that uh, this concert of Ravel, it was already in the public domain in Germany, but it was still in the private domain in France. And so legally, just on both sides of the, of the river, you had a private situation and a public situation. And this sort of interval, legal interval, it was due to the fact of how one counts the years of the war, including the Second World War. So again, you, you can see that this, this out of syncness is not only, which it's a lot, Ravel Ravel as a work, it's a lot about this out of syncness or composing with going in and out of sync because uh, the, the installation is two pianists, each of them playing, executing the, the, the concerto with their respective left hand and accompanied by an orchestra. So within the space you hear 
two pianists and two orchestras, mm -hmm. and they continuously shift in and out of sync. But there is also this this out of syncness, which is a legal one, which is in relation to the copyright and to the, yeah. which translates a lot of all these loopholes and 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 unresolved yet issues in the in the within the the European legal uh, frame or. So it definitely was an interesting part for me in the, in the sense that technically I was not even obliged to, to pay copyright to, to, to show the work in the German pavilion, although I would have been obliged to, to, to pay the copyright would I have been in, in, the, French in the French pavilion. And how this plays out, a little bit like this, the, the, this sort of global scene within the pavilions uh, uh, of the Giardini. One of the questions I had was around interpretation, and you've you've talked a bit about how you select the musicians to play, and how you select the orchestras as well to play, um, because of course, um, you know we are at a time where a number of orchestras are closing. There's a demise in orchestras, and yet, um, no more so than ever, are we seeing particular uh, orchestras that have a, a certain reputation for interpretation in certain ways. So how do you select, what's your criteria for looking at those conductors that are going to um, work with the orchestra or the musicians who will interpret and play those pieces that then become part of these installations? Well, I think sometimes, I mean, very often the approach I, I, I take to music, it's not the most, it's not one that musicians are familiar with. And I think also the fact that I'm not a musician allows me to dare do things, not that I find them so daring, but that somehow uh, people coming from within the music world, they, they wouldn't mess with. Yeah. Um, but on the other side, it's really about starting a dialogue with people who are interested in the idea and who are um, wanting to, to, to play along. Uh, that idea. And there's been quite a few cases which have been, from the music point of view, a bit extreme and difficult to perform. But to me, it's, of course, every time it's very important to work also with people to make sure that whatever I'm asking is, from the point of view of the musical performance, is doable, is bio. It's like one can do it you, without asking that much um, in terms of... Um, stress and, and possibility to do it. I'm very much, and the best examples for that was like Long Sorrow, was Ravel Ravel with the two pianists, and especially the, the orchestra, which is a very large body of an orchestra. Uh, the Ravel orchestra would have been around between 70 and 80, so we had an orchestra around 80 plus musicians, uh, which was the National Orchestra of France, and, and they had to basically follow these shifts in the tempo, and of course the, the role of the conductor is very important in, in there, because that's the one who is basically negotiating your idea while it becomes a reality in that sense. Um, and then when I've done this other uh, work, uh, the present moment, which was with the, with the Chamber Music Orchestra of Munich, which is the same orchestra for which I recorded the, concert, the, the Mozart concerto for the last mm -hmm. Calder Public Art Projects, which just opened in Sydney. Um, it's always about it's also about the relations, and it's really about you respecting what is possible for them, but also they respecting the, the challenge and being interested by the challenge that they're being asked. I think the most challenging in that sense from a musical point of view, besides the, 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 the saxophone player being suspended, which was challenging physically, was the, the present moment was when the orchestra was playing all the, the B-flat tones for one film, that existed in the Verklechte Nacht of, uh, of um, uh, Schoenberg, um, or all the detons. So basically, they are in a repetition of, of a note. It's a sextet, and they are continuously playing the same tonality, but in all the rhythmical values that, ex that they uh, exist in the, in the original score. So this brings, brought me this interest also to, um, because you mentioned at some point the music, how it relates to narrative, how it relates to memory. And I think my approach to music is a bit the following. I don't make a choice based on the melody, based on the beautiness of it. To me, it's more about the inside architecture of the music, whether mm -hmm. it allows or not the, 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 the impact of, of my choices in terms of shifting, and etc. But it's also about what this piece of music represents as, as a fossil of its old time. 
as an archaeological object, as an artifact, something which does not only represent the genius of the artist behind, but also its correspondence to the existing taste of that period, its correspondence to, to, the, to the historical and social development of the period when it was created. But unlike an archaeologist, like an archaeologist would be interested in the fossil to find out so that the fossil can, can shed more light about the past, mm -hmm. I'm interested in, in using this uh, artifact and accompanying it towards its own future. So, for example, in the case of Ravel Ravel, uh, the way how the music deconstructs and goes in and out of, of shift, it comes at moments very close to some jazzy moments or like forms of music which would only exist later, but which Ravel is known, he, was, he already had started to be, to be keen on, like jazz which was coming from the yeah. other side of the Atlantic, etc. In the case of the present moment, I was very interested in this idea of a piece of music, which is Verklertanat, which is one of the, which is the most famous tonal um, composition of Schoenberg, who later became famous for being the father of serialism and atonality. Uh, so the piece starts like, a, like a, a sound piece. You hear the sextet, and then every time a new tonality is played within the original piece, it starts flying or crossing through a series of speakers through the space, and it goes to the very end of it, and it starts repeating like as if it was in a dead-end space. And then eventually, after a certain time, it flies again at the very, very end of the space where the film is happening, and then you see the orchestra playing only the D tones. So it's a little bit like the work is deconstructed, and it's sort of going towards its own future because it's a tonal work that becomes atonal, and along its way, not only it discovers serialism and atonality, but also seeing the musicians perform it you, you see certain production forms that in, in 1899 or 1901, when it was performed for the very first time, did not exist yet, such, such as chain production, mm -hmm. repetition of the same gesture. I remember at that time I was very interested, I was reading a lot of books about, also for my curiosity and fun, about Taylorism and Fordism and the relation between efficiency of work and choreography of the body, how to... How to how to do more using less energy. Not so much in, or, in order to hurt the body less, but so that you could get out more out mm. of each worker. So all this repetition, like repeating uh, an orchestra during the shooting, repeating three days in a row only the B-flat tones, it's very demanding towards the orchestra, but it carries also this repetition of, the of, the, uh, of the, this form of production, like repeating the same gesture again and again, repeating the same tonality again and again. So it becomes a bit like a, like a factory of, uh, of, of one tone, the mm. D tone factory, the, the B flat factory, and, and so on. So my approach is always not of the archaeologist, like trying to deal, to use music as a way to deal with memory and orient myself towards the past, but it's more about finding this artifact of the past with all its revealing content about the social political context that it related when it produced, but then uh, not use it, but like work it with it so that it reveals things towards the future rather than towards the past. And that's exactly what you've done with the work that you've just presented um, for yeah. Cowder Projects, of course, because you've again used a piece of music, which is a Mozart clarinet concerto, um, wind again. So we see this interest in wind, this, um, uh, you know, it's probably an interest, it's probably a, an instrument that is, uh, as well as voice. It's you the closest know, to the voice. Yeah, yeah, it's the same as voice. You, you lose your, your feet, you lose your breath, you, there, there will be no sound. Um, but it's a means of rethinking the present and the future. Um, and I wonder what was it about that piece of music that, that you, why did you select Mozart? It's 1791, so it's the last year of his life. At the same time, he has just, or he will produce the Mozart Requiem, and he'll also produce the Magic Flute. This is a very mature Mozart um, at the peak of his game, really. He's had really difficult times. Um, he's, was it something to do with the status of the artist? Was it something to do with um, uh, the language? What was it that... that, that um, and, of course, we know now that Mozart... Um, it's widely acknowledged that Mozart is the, is the, is the sort of music that they, they often put out in... Um, 
shopping centres uh, and they use in public places to calm people down. So if we go back to those early ideas of public places and people taking ownership of public places, you know, he, he, his music has a calming effect. But what was the thinking around the selection of the work, that work in this Caldor project? Actually, it was not... Um, it was really not related to the narratives of the life of the Mozart, musician, yep. of the musician, but it was, I was interested in finding a, a, a piece of music which was contemporary to the arrival of the first fleet in Australia. So I was very interested in these rifts that I find between, and this interval again, like what happens in the interval of the journey between all the high ideals of, of the uh, Western Enlightenment, how it brought forward a certain relative independence of the individual, whether a creative individual or everyone towards um, the structures of power, towards the aristocracy, uh, uh, monarchies, etc. And how all these ide new ideas of tolerance, of acceptance of the other, once they made it ashore on a distant land, how they rather produced a, a fallout of loss and devastation. So it's very interesting in this rift between uh, the enlightenment on one hand and the blindness that it's, that, uh, of the very people who are thinking of bringing these values along. So, and this relation between the lights on one side and the darkness that it produced uh, on other ways of relating to the world, to culture, to nature, basically on other civilizations. So I was very interested in, in that very moment. Uh, and Mozart, it's, like I say, it was, um, I, I, I researched a bit the three, four, the three years before and after the arrival of the First Fleet, and this is, of course, one of the pieces which is the, the highlights or, the, or one of the masterpieces of the Golden Age of the European Enlightenment. Uh, and then it has all these other qualities, that it's a wind uh, concerto, especially the second movement, it's very legato, it's very, I mean, which is also the, the adagio, which is the most known one. And because I, uh, like in Ravel Ravel, like in another work I've done with Pathetic of Tchaikovsky, and uh, as well as this one, I'm very interested to work with the inner architecture, with the time and how changes in tempo and in time impact the, 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 the music. Or play along with the, with the music. So in the case of the, of the project here, I took the original score of Mozart, but I, instead of, but uh, ex extracted out all the original tempi of Mozart and replaced them with the wind descriptions on a private journal uh, of uh, James Pell, a Scotsman who traveled some 40 years after the arrival of the first fleet. He, he traveled from England to, to Australia. And every day, the first sentence is, about the weather condition and especially the wind. And also English being a very, I would say, rich language in terms of describing the differences in wind, it also allows for a very um, rich register of being able to apply different winds to, to different tempis. So the possibility of tempis was, was quite rich in that sense. Um, and so I, I replaced the original tempi by the wind descriptions and there are about eight, nine different sorts of winds, and the, and, and the concerto advances no longer according to the rhythmical pattern and will of Mozart, but according to the, to the, to the journey of, of and, the, uh, and to the winds corresponding to the journey of James Bell. Um, so this was the, the, the three, the GPS, would say, the three coordinates that interest me. The first fleet, the masterpiece of the European Enlightenment and the idea of the journey and corruption that comes from the journey, which is a sort of a metaphor of the corruption that happens to the journey of some high ideas and how they made it ashore on a distant land. I'm conscious of time. I know we started late because of the, um, uh, because of the marathon and I know that there will be questions. But I, I did um, just want to finish on a point. This work is actually presented in a rotunda at a very significant cultural part of Sydney, up on a high point, um, next to an observatory tower. Um, the um, drum kits are actually inverted and hung from the ceiling. What, what, um, 
for people coming across this, not particularly art world audiences, people stumbling across it in their day-to-day lives, what sort of experience do you hope that they may take from um, a rethinking of a space, of an architectural context and a um, fragmentation of music that has been reinterpreted through wind presented in this context? I mean, I, I, I hope that, that the work is experiential enough so that people take something out of it. I don't have expectations about what should they take with. I think very, I'm very much against the idea that you expect that you have certain goals because sometimes these certain goals lead you to, 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 to give certain shape to your work. But I'm very much, uh, I, I hope that the work is, has all these many layers and they are not mandatory in the sense that one could as well, well just enjoy it for what it is, for what it sounds and how it looks. And then if somebody um, is more interested, then there is more layers about the, the relation with the first fleet, the relation of the, of the enlightenment with the, with, the, uh, with the colonies, how this very idea of empiricism be, uh, became uh, somehow a dark force when um, at the same time um, I mean all these other layers that 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 one can scratch and 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 find as well but at the very end I think to me it's very important that the that the work when the work may be challenging but should not be demanding so I don't expect anything I, I don't I definitely do not expect people to necessarily need to know all the other all the all the reasons of, or all the reasons of the research or all the other layers. And of course, it's presented not in a museum space, not absolutely, in a gallery space. So it just happens. So to, you to the can just they, happen across it in a come. way that we see in this pavilion as well. People can come. We come for specific absolutely, talks. Yeah. We come to hear specific things or performances. But the most joyous thing about it is the the happenstance. Absolutely. The but accidental. I, I just wanted to um, to before we open it to the floor, because we spoke so much about the instruments and the, my choice of the instruments. So basically, uh, I've been working a lot with the wind instruments, with the, with the piano as such. We won't have time to talk about the, oh. of the piano <laughs> and the drums. Which, yeah. uh, and besides the fact that I'm interested in the drums as these uh, visual speakers, like speakers who are able to, to trigger their own choreography. But I'm also on a more historical level and less known is the relation between the drums and that very period. For example, in the period preceding the, the, the arrival of the first fleet, when, you, when what is today, the United States was still a British colony, there was a period when the, the drums were forbidden because having many of them coming from um, Africa, uh, many slaves, or there was a fear that as much as one could separate the slaves so they could not organize together and eventually uh, uh, have an appraisal, one way that they could communicate was by playing the Through drums. Drumming. So, uh, so they, they, they outload the drums, the instrument, and the drumming as such. And there, so there is a history uh, that goes back to the drums being seen as a, as, a, as a danger. On the other side, it could also go on the other side of the specter, and one can also think of the military parades and the, and the drumming. Mm. And the, but I, I, I hope that, I mean, I hope, I think that formally speaking and sculpturally, the, the work itself is, 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 is far enough from the organized military uh, uh, pattern and form. I would like to thank you very much this morning. Before we finish, I know that there will be questions, so I'd like to open it up very quickly just to a couple of quick questions before we finish up today. Esther. Thanks. Thank you both very much. Um, Anri, I'm very interested in your conception of public space. There are a, a lot of times in which um, in your talk both of you have um, referred to public space or described public space. And I wonder whether you have a particular conception of public space that frames your approach to it. So we've talked about public space as being contested. You talked about public space in the Albanian context as um, it was necessary to attack it to express the anger against it so that it could become shared again. Um, 
Is it something that um, uh, you see as being important with a matter of urgency in, in, our, in our contemporary times? Or do you do your best to approach the public space in a more detached way that doesn't impose a framework or an ethic? Like we spoke before, the relation, like uh, how I grew up, what it meant, the public space, what happened to it, the relation of the people to it, and then having traveled, living in, in places where, because of uh, more political and social continuity, the relation to the, with the public space is less troubled, so to say. However, it's an it's, it's a extremely important uh, space. It's probably in my own work. I don't use it so much as a space for my own work, but as a space for thinking my own work. Not, so I don't see it as a place where it could be placed. It's been only, I would say, two, three works that have that... Have that possibility of application, like the one now in Sydney, one that is for documenta with this cute work, uh, clock, large clock that can measure time in perspective, and, and eventually one which is, which is public, of course, but which is like, but still a bit closed, where I did this program of films, uh, where I chose around 60 films, feature films, and each of them, it made me feel a certain degree of temperature, so they're connected to a small thermometer weather station outside and the program inside would change in relation to the to the temperature outside, and it it questions this relation between how a, a minor change in temperature produced a, a rupture in the narrative, because then you just jump from a film into another. So I, that's that's the way how I've been working uh, concretely with the public space. But it does interest me more as something to think about rather than as a as a place to 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 put my um, my own work in 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 that sense. As you know, particularly going back to that architecture, you know there was the spaces were very small. Um, people live in a, in much closer proximity, and yet a lot of the works took you outside and enabled a creativity outside of those places. So a free opportunity, a free space, if you want, that that made you reflect the con the contained, and then the possibilities, and that was that free jazz too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I we will. You're absolutely right. <laughs> thank you, Naomi, for that very <laughs> sensible winding up. Henri, I would like to thank you very, very much um, this morning and this afternoon. It has been a great pleasure to have you in Melbourne to have the conversation to share with us today. So please join me in thanking Henri Sala uh, for speaking. Thank you.